32 million metric tons that the United Nations brokered, you know, through that deal, moving corn, wheat, and other grains. And it's going to disproportionately affect countries that clearly depend on that humanitarian aid. And, you know, essentially Russia is holding hostage food for releasing, removing economic sanctions. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we are talking about how the Russia issue of pulling out of the Black Sea Initiative is risking a global grain shortage. Some New York City updates from Robinhood about the immigration situation in the state. And then uh, UK Charity Foundation News. I think there's a lot to cover. How's it going, Nick? It's going great, George. How's your week going? going going well i um you know spent spent a, a good weekend with the toddlers doing some swim class i think my my one of my little ones is pool safe so like that's a pretty big milestone that's huge congratulations the I other one will ask. sink like a stone though so he'll go right oh, to the no. bottom <laughs> so you well, know we're not there yet hopefully uh hopefully we get there soon But as you mentioned, I'm going to start us off with our major story for this week, which is that Russia has pulled out of the Black Sea Initiative, risking global grain price and a supply shock. So the Black Sea grain export deal was facilitating the safe export of grain from Ukraine for the past year, essentially, and played a significant role in easing the global food crisis brought on by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It was set to expire after Russia announced it would suspend its participation in kind of a dramatic, like, hours before we are pulling out. Um, This was reported by Reuters and and numerous other outlets. The deal was initially negotiated by the United Nations, as well as Turkey, and enabled Ukraine to export approximately 32 million metric tons of corn, wheat, and other grains amid the conflict, essentially allowing uh, exports safely through the blockade, the Russian blockade of Ukraine, Ukraine's Black Sea ports. So the end of this deal could have considerable ramifications for global grain prices, which had previously soared to record highs at the onset of Russia's invasion in February 2022. A key Russian demand had been to reconnect the Russian Agricultural Bank to the SWIFT international payment system. It's an international you know, bank, digital bank system, which the EU had severed in 2022 as a penalty for Russia's invasion. So this initiative was run by the Joint Coordination Center based out of Istanbul, which includes United Nations, Turkey, Ukrainian and Russian staff, and oversaw the export of those 32 million tons of food from Ukrainian Black Sea ports that was delivered to over 45 countries across three continents. So Ukraine is a major player in grain production, both in the region and around the world. And George, we reported on this story last year, and we talked about humanitarians, folks addressing famine in the Horn of Africa to other places around the globe, 
kind of sounding the alarm about how dire it was for a food shortage of this magnitude. And now all those concerns are kind of going to be, we're already starting to hear them. As Ukraine is a key supplier of grain on the international markets, and as we were saying, relied on heavily by humanitarian organizations and NGOs, the FAO, and other, you know, emergency food providers. So George, we could potentially see a surge in food prices and food-related emergencies become exacerbated by this situation. What's your take? I think you covered it pretty accurately. And the reason this is a nonprofit story is exactly as you said, because the amount of nonprofits, humanitarian organizations that rely on this grain and food at volume, you know, like 32 million metric tons that the United Nations brokered, you know, through that deal, moving corn, wheat, and other grains. And it's going to disproportionately affect countries that clearly depend on that humanitarian aid. And, you know, essentially Russia is holding hostage food for releasing, removing economic sanctions for, you know, this, this ongoing war that doesn't seem to have an end in sight. So we've already started to see grain and food prices increase, which means for nonprofits working on humanitarian issues, again, you will see hopefully the ability to fundraise more effectively for increased ways. I don't even know how you get around the fact that 32 million metric tons of food is just, you know, being slowed down. I worry about also the amount of time I'm paying attention to the amount of time that this is like held in, in ports or temporary storage. Food doesn't last forever. There's a shelf life on, on all of it. And the truth is if you're you know, keeping it in, in these places where it's not designed to, you could easily have the, you know, the, the foodstuffs expire. So I think there's, you know, a risk, even if it's like, oh, it's just, you know, a couple week delay or a month delay on this, those, you know, days and weeks matter quite a bit for the quality of the food. And it is super concerning. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think we even understand the, the second order effects of this in terms of famine. Yeah, George, I think that that's a great point. And I, I think back to actually the pandemic, when, do you remember that boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal? <laughs> the Suez? And Was it the Suez? I think so, in Egypt. And it created international headlines because it disrupted international trade and, you know, was cited as a reason that we potentially are seeing higher prices because there's a single boat stuck in a canal. And I think the takeaway for me in this is that the... The interconnectivity of our economies, the globalized nature of our economies has improved the quality of life for, for so many in so many countries, but also made us reliant and particularly, I would say, susceptible to conflict, disaster, and other kind of hiccups in that system now has global implications. So something that you know nonprofits in the United States we just talked about last week dealing with higher prices you know we've seen a little bit of a decrease in inflation but it stuff is still more expensive than it was 2 3 4 years ago by a significant margin so something to keep an eye on even if you are a US based nonprofit i think nonprofits 
as a whole do an amazing job of reallocating the surplus of capitalism. And, you know, when you have internationally that that system disrupted, there's not enough surplus to distribute and it was already thin to begin with. I don't know really what a nonprofit's next step is in in allocating when the surplus is not there because our system as classically designed does a poor job at the margins of making sure people have enough to even like subsist and survive. Yeah, George, I, I think you I think you say it well. So we'll we'll continue to talk about this. We'll we'll examine the the effects of this. We'll do a follow-up, I'm sure but wanted to bring that at the top of the podcast. I want to take us into our next story. And this one comes from New York One. And it's a really interesting interview with a representative from the Robin Hood Foundation, not to be confused with the day trading app, but the Robin Hood Foundation is an anti-poverty and overall really kind of integral part of New York City community nonprofit system, helping folks experiencing poverty and all sorts of other other issues. And the interview goes into how New York City nonprofits are potentially struggling to help existing clients in a surge of migrants and asylum seekers from across the world. So New York City in particular uh, has seen a surge um, in migrants. The city's done a it's very complicated, right? Um, the system's kind of all over the place. As someone in New York City, there's folks being housed in like Times Square hotels that are just like randomly being moved. The, 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 the system is not designed um, for this many people and in no way making excuses. But we wanted to talk about the challenges that are sometimes kind of passed along. People keep on, you know, passing the buck for responsibility um, for helping asylum seekers who are entitled, by the way, um, to legal protection under international and United States asylum law. But it seems, George, that the buck keeps on getting passed down until finally it's left to city and local nonprofits like the Robin Hood Foundation to help these people. And they seem to be strange right now. And I think it says a lot when Robin Hood is talking about this because they are the, you know, one of the largest funded nonprofits supporting poverty in the city, objectively in the entire country that has been very well resourced. You know, Robin Hood's uh, epic gala, you know, comes to mind with literally millions and millions being donated, you know, per table as people just raise a, raise a panel and, and put toward the cause of helping the, the cities underserved. And the fact that they are talking about this says a lot because they're well-resourced and they're talking about needing more. I think the number was something like 50,000 immigrants that they were trying to support, was it? And I think it's a broader reflection of poor, poor immigration policy, frankly, of how you bring people into this country and then distribute them fairly across the various states and municipalities that need to support them. And like traditionally, I think border border states have, have been dealing this, with this for quite some time. And only recently now there's this larger move in migration inside of the country around where people that enter this country go and nonprofits, you're right, pick up, pick up that work. But at the same time, you don't see requisite uh, dollars going their way necessarily. I think it's super important, you know, no matter what side of the aisle you're voting on to just consider that like the net result is that people are here and our social infrastructure 
largely buoyed by nonprofits are, are doing that work. And, and, uh, I think it's great that not, I think it's great that Robinhood, with their reputation can be talking about this in a way that frankly, progressives will maybe pay a bit more attention to in terms of, yeah, you know, I, I believe in bringing in and having open borders and whatever your stance is like, here's the truth. Here's the largest nonprofit in New York city saying like, we're, we're being strained and, uh, and we are ones with resources. Yeah. I think being able to have kind of a nuanced and intelligent conversation about it's really important. I'll call out that, uh, United States government has not substantially updated its immigration system or passed any kind of major immigration legislation in nearly two decades. The whole system's broken. It's out of date. It's understunded, underfunded. There's an incredible backlog. And there are incredible nonprofits, so many New York City-based nonprofits that in addition to providing support for these migrants are providing legal assistance. There's children who end up here with, you know, crazy, crazy stories who seek legal representation or need help. There are real people who need help and assistance. And I think it's really important that we enable those nonprofits to provide those assistance because they've been doing so really well for so long and they deserve the full the full support and resources that they need. All right, George, I want to take us into this next story. I think this could potentially open up an interesting conversation, but a major UK charitable foundation, as reported by The Guardian, with an endowment of nearly 130 million pounds, has announced it is to abolish itself after concluding that traditional philanthropy is, quote, a function of colonial capitalism and that it had itself become part of the problem. So Langley Chase, which gives out approximately 13 million pounds a year in grants to hundreds of charities operating in the areas such as social, racial, and climate justice, said it wanted to find a bold new alternative to what it called philanthropy's, quote, cult of benevolence. So the 60-year-old institution said it would spend the next five years giving away essentially all of its assets to organizations and networks which are doing, quote, life-affirming social justice work in communities around the UK. Uh, and this seems to come from increasing conversations about its inability to kind of tackle racism and the arrival at kind of the bold and pretty, I would say, at least for the industry, unorthodox stance that the organization itself actually needed to be dissolved to essentially devolve power back to communities. I would say that this comes in the context of the United Kingdom which has kind of much more significant, I would say, public debates around colonialism and the vestiges of imperialism, particularly as conversations around the monarch and the kings and, of course, you know, colonial Britain, which at one point ruled, what, like three quarters of the world. George, what do we make of this? What do we think of this? Which is quite interesting, actually. And then how might we think that this is relevant or maybe slightly dis disrelevant, not as relevant for American charities, or is it the same? Or does philanthropy really, really have this kind of colonial, capitalistic, self-advancement mentality? And what do folks working in philanthropy think of this? I think there's, there's a lot to unpack here. I think it's just super powerful that that concept and pushing that narrative of I love those words cult of benevolence this you know frankly honest look at what an endowment really is at times which is this philanthropy is a function of colonial capitalism I mean 
it's fed by it, it's shaped by it, it's funded by it, and it perpetuates it. Because where does that endowment live? Where's that money sitting? Mutual funds, the exact companies that created this freaking process. And by the way, you get this tax benefit for giving away money. And then you get to put yourself on a tiny little benevolent perch upon which you can dole out tiny fractions of an endowment that grows faster than the amount you give away. Yeah, I think there's a couple things to think about here. Currently in the US, roughly 230 billion is held in DAFs, donor advised funds. And these are, you know, sometimes predominantly tax vehicles, but there are ways of when you have a windfall as a wealthy individual in this country, parking money so that you can then dole out over time this amount of money, but ultimately sits in some sort of market fund. Overall, there's 1.3 trillion said to be in private foundation assets. And that was 2021 in terms of numbers I can find. And that number's not getting smaller. So at, like at what point, at what point do you solve it? Your cause, your issue? Here's a question. In the system, do you think another trillion dollars into foundations helps nonprofits? At what point do we begin to see the results, right? Maybe if you had a hundred trillion, ah, then we would have it. Because finally you could have more board meetings about how to give out one percent of that amount of money to struggling nonprofits. Maybe that's the answer. Now, where's the inflection point? So I clearly come down pretty hard on this one where I think it's beautiful. I think you should be, if you have an endowment, there should be a sunset. When do we solve the issue? When do we run out of money? Because our job is not to dole out money in small amounts indefinitely so that we can afford our, you know, cult of benevolence here. I think this is, um, you know, a great conversation to have. And that's not casting a stone at all foundations, but certainly there's a conversation worth having. Yeah, I think I'm, I think it's a <laughs> spicy, super spicy takes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a, it's a spicy take. It's a spicy take, but one worth having, right? We talked on this show, this podcast all the time about disappointments in kind of charitable disbursement of funds, DAFs that aren't dispersed enough. And and to your point, right, these 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 money, this money is sitting in funds that are very literally the exploitative capitalist system that have has taken advantage of of people and parse people into the haves and haves nots. I think that's a that's a really solid argument. I think I think I'm inclined to agree with it. The one thing I would say, though, is sometimes it can be helpful for maybe organizations with like with real experts, right? Like I'm not saying like all of philanthropy needs to give away all of its money tomorrow, right? Like there are real people, real experts, and I think philanthropy has a long way to go, but has made an effort of diversifying, including more community stakeholders. Things like, you know, the Ford Foundation, right, does amazing kind of social justice work and disperses a lot of money. But this really adds to that conversation of kind of just like the unfettered kind of reorientation of wealth to people who need that money working on transformative work. And I think back to Mackenzie Scott, who gives away free 
no strings attached money. That's what she's doing. It's just money. And, you know, it takes her so long because it's just so much freaking money. <laughs> right. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said here. And if I was sitting in a nonprofit, I would be interested in what this kind of conversation will look like. I'm not saying that, <laughs> you know, if you're a foundation, you need to like dissolve tomorrow, but like, what kind of lessons does this bold step mean for your organization? I'll put another point here because I don't like just hand wringing and getting frustrated. Here's the answer. Like if you're saying like, how do we deal with the fact that, you know, 1.3 trillion is like sitting in endowments and private foundations effectively working in the system that creates inequality at scale right now, the number is 5% to maintain your, your foundation. You need to give away 5% of the fair market value of your endowment each year. Keep in mind, the average growth rate of the market is 8%. I'm just saying push for 10. You should be giving away more than you are making. You should have to, in order to maintain that endowment, in order to maintain your public tax benefit status, the thing that we all subsidize, we, we do that. Your taxes, my taxes, you listening right now, your money's going to support these people with massive $1.3 trillion for their, we don't have to pay taxes on the, the profit we make off of, off of this endowment. They can run around, do whatever, 10%, double the number. Because if it's for public benefit, let me see the dollars and get it working. And here's the funny thing. Every dollar that ends up in a traditional US nonprofit here are the numbers, like while it only presents 5% of our GDP production for nonprofits, it represents 10% of our labor, 10% of our labor. You're getting a two to one value on putting dollars to actual work employment at the grassroots level in communities and working. Yeah, albeit there's a lot of numbers that are associated with hospitals inside of that as well. But the truth is those dollars get back into the system a heck of a lot faster and fairer than sitting in $1.3 trillion bouncing around just invested in the market. Double it, double it, go five to 10. Somebody push on it, I'll help you. Well, let's get that on a t-shirt, double it. Double the disbursement. <laughs> bold, bold opinions, bold experiment here. If you're listening to this podcast and you've made it this far, one, good for you. Two, <laughs> send us your thoughts. Send us an email. You've made it this far. <laughs> We've just kept talking at this point. This is this is what it's about. This is what it's about. These are the conversations. Hey, but you know what? Some nonprofits may not have a place uh, for employees to have conversations like this. Um, so uh, we invite you to continue that conversation with us. If you have strong thoughts or opinions, email us at george at wholewhale.com or nicholas at wholewhale.com and we hope to hear from you. I want to take us into our next story. And this one um, is from the New York City Public Theater, which has laid off 19% of its staff, citing reduced audiences and rising costs. So uh, the public theater, as it's known, is quite literally an institution in New York City. It's one of the most visible uh, nonprofits, um, let alone probably the most famous uh, nonprofit uh, theater in the country. Um, and these layoffs come, quite frankly, on the heels of what has been a really brutal couple of years for the theater industry um, with the pandemic. It was kind of the last industry to recover, right? Because it depends on 
live in-person crowded theaters and performances um, taking a hit here at New York City's public theater, which even if you haven't heard of it, you've heard of its productions. Um, that is where Hamilton originated um, back about uh, six or seven years ago. Um, and they also host the free uh, Shakespeare in the Park, uh, free Shakespeare theater productions in Central Park, which they've been doing for 50, 60 years, something like that. Um, so George, I threw this one in here just because it's such an institution. You and I are both theater people. Um, this is this is tough to see, um, and I hope that uh, we're able this this news um, in some ways spurs action uh, from donors. But let's take some some of that one point three trillion and and bring it back to, uh, <laughs> Senate to the uh, public theater, which does so much, right? Um, free Shakespeare in the park. That's one of the best things about New York City. Yeah, I. I was actually pretty surprised by this because I actually thought that there was a resurgence of uh, Broadway attention and attendance that had been going on, but the overall numbers really, I think, maybe been hidden under the success of Hamilton. I, I think the the long tail here it drops off quickly, right? It's more of a power law where you have, you know, one dominant production, and then you know what about the other, you know, pipeline, the pipeline that needs to exist for creating that next great show, and also not to mention the number of. Uh, performers uh that this supports and uh, i don't know that made me really sad to see like i didn't see like 19 percent uh needing to cut uh, at that level is pretty significant yes yes um you know hopefully we're able to to bounce back um for those who don't know the new york city theater community is just a fantastic community it's a very collaborative community um they constantly do fundraising events um and yeah. in-person events um i volunteered for a a broadway for ukraine event um they hosted a protest for ukraine they're just new york city theater community is one of the best things um about new york city um so and this is a, a key pillar of that um so we wish them the best george how about a feel-good story i really need one <laughs> I think the one you found is really funny. Okay, I'll <laughs> take us into it. So, uh, George, you know what's going to be good when it comes from Alabama.com, but a nonprofit has bought 23,000 acres of forest land to protect a rare salamander found only in Alabama. And, George, you have it up right there. Um, so uh, the Red Hill Salamander is the, quote, only terrestrial vertebrate that inhabits only Alabama, including um, uh, just six counties in Alabama, actually. It's considered threatened by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and this nonprofit um, has taken it upon itself uh, to protect this land and this salamander um, uh, via a fund and a $17 million loan. Um, George, I love wildlife. What I don't love is the picture of that salamander. Like, that is not a great looking uh, representative from the animal kingdom. Yeah. I'm just pretty, I'm pretty impressed by the salamander. I think it's performed pretty well to uh, have inspired $17 million investment in 23,000 acres of forest land. I love the idea of, um, you know, using your money to literally protect acres of forest land. I'm really hoping there's some cuter animals being saved by this because, yeah, the salamander is a tough one if you're watching on our uh, on our YouTube. But, you know, they, 
There it is. The salamander that launched 23,000 acres. I mean, it's a good picture of the salamander, but yikes. It's, yeah, yeah. Not a looker. Not a looker. <laughs> well, I do have a final joke for you here. Uh, question to you, though. Why did the nonprofit Space Camp send a blank email? I don't know. Uh, they only like the space bar. Because ah, space <laughs> camp, space camp. <laughs> space bar, space bar. I got if it. If you just hit the space bar, it. you just get empty. Maybe I'll send a blank uh, subject line, see how that performs. Every now and then, that'll get you some open rate. All right, Nick. Hey, thank you. Taylor Swift wrote about blank space. See ya. <laughs> this has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.